It is, uh, it's great to be here, and uh, it's great to be with you. Great to see all your faces. Some of your faces look a little older, as does mine. Uh, over COVID, I think I, I think I aged about a decade. Um, and, uh, but it, it, seeing lots of faces here that look a little older, and lots of kids that, that used to be in uh, baby baskets and are now walking around. It's wonderful. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts 9, 26 to 31. Acts 9, 26 to 31. This morning we're going to look at the hidden years of the Apostle Paul. And uh, I, I'm trying to remember back, I know why Pastor Levi invited me here today. Uh, we, worked, we workshopped, as, uh, as Brother Ron mentioned, we do a, a preaching workshop where we, we collaborate and, and we uh, help each other on all the things uh, that we're, we're working on. And we happen to be a little ahead of you in the Acts series. And, uh, and so he said, oh, when you come, or when we come in our Acts series to this passage, I'd love for you to preach that here. So I know why I'm here, but I can't remember why you are also studying the book of Acts. Uh, I, I know why we are, and I think it's the same reason. After COVID, we thought it would be really helpful, because whatever you think about COVID, and that doesn't matter, I don't think anybody here would deny that it was a world-changing experience. Uh, when you shut the world down for a couple of years, when you turn it back on, it's not the same. Um, and we're not the same. You can't spend two years in the basement, you know, watching Netflix and eating Chinese takeout and not be changed, right? In, in a variety of ways, probably some good, probably some not so good. Uh, and the church, with all that we went through as a church, it, we changed in a lot of ways. And I think in some very good ways. And, and I think in some not very good ways. I had a friend uh, right in the middle, right in the bad old days of COVID, I had a friend say to me, an older fellow, and it's nice to have, I, I'm at the stage of my life where I really appreciate uh, older pastors because I realize for most people, I'm their old pastor friend. Uh, but this, this, is, this is my old pastor friend. And uh, he said to me, he said, you know, when this is over, a church that has been preaching the Bible, an evangelical, like Jesus-following, spirit-filled Bible-believing church, when, when this is over, those churches will be smaller at the edges, but stronger at the core. And I think that has proved true. But everything's up in the air. Like, for example, just, just even here, like so much changed over COVID. Uh, I think I've preached here once since COVID, and, and so I've preached once up on the stage. But of course, we didn't used to have the stage. I think you originally brought in the stage because of so you wanted to keep a distance, right? There's a spray zone uh, for preachers. You're in it, uh, but the rest of you are, are beyond it. Um, wisely done. Uh, we didn't pass around the plates today, did we? Do you remember passing the plates? You'll, you'll explain passing the plates to your children and grandchildren. Uh, communion is different. Lots has changed. And so we, the reason we're doing Acts is because we thought, you know, coming out into this world on the other side, it, it would probably be very helpful to go back to the book of Acts and just do a walkthrough, a particular type of walkthrough. Uh, we said when we started the series, we're not committing to reading every single paragraph like you would normally do through a book of the Bible. We're kind of on like a scavenger hunt. We're looking for passages that can help us think about how, how the church is put together, what it is that God is calling us to do, how God prepares us for useful service, what useful service looks like. We are looking for specific things. You've probably heard the old expression, it's hard to do maintenance on an airplane in flight. 
you can do some stuff, right? You can wipe down the treetops, uh, but if you want to do significant stuff, you've got to ground that airplane. Well, when, when COVID kind of grounded the church, it all of a sudden opened the doors for rethinking about a lot of stuff. And you want to make sure we didn't change anything we shouldn't have changed. But we also want to make sure that in this season where we can have these conversations, we're talking about the right things. So anyway, that's why we are doing Acts. I can't remember if that's why you are doing Acts. I'm going to operate on the assumption uh, that it is or that if, even if it's not, you're willing to humor me for just a few minutes. The part of the story that we're dump, dipping into uh, this morning, as I mentioned, is uh, it's called, it's usually referred to as the hidden years of the Apostle Paul. And it tends to be the least well-known part of the story for most of us. Uh, most of us are very familiar with um, the great events of Paul's life. We're very familiar, for example, with his Damascus Road conversion. That's even become a saying. Uh, you will hear that on television, like some, so-and-so had a Damascus Road experience. It means a radical experience that completely changed your direction in life. So we know about that. And then, of course, if you spend any time in church at all over the course of your life, then you know a little bit about Paul's missionary journeys and... Um, and, of course, you know about his letters. But the part that we don't know about comes between. It's the time after his Damascus Road conversion, but before he becomes the leader and the writer and the preacher and the thinker and, and the builder that we all know. What happened in those years before, or between? And the reason we, don't, we tend not to know as much about them is because Instead of like a picture that you can just look at or a story that you can just read, it's actually like puzzle pieces that you have to stitch together. Acts, the book of Acts, doesn't actually say a great deal about these years. It says a little bit. And the rest you have to piece together from little biographical details that Paul puts into his letters. But we're looking at this space right after Paul's conversion and then again before he becomes this, this great leader. Paul, Saul, uh, as he's known at this point in the story, gets off to such an incredible start. He's preaching the gospel, he's confounding the authorities, he's causing an uproar, and then all of a sudden, contrary to everything that we would expect, God sends him away into utter obscurity for the better part of a decade. Now, why in the world would God do that? And, and by looking at that story, by looking at these hidden years, we can learn something about how God shapes and molds the character of a believer. And we can see into, this, this entire story is an illustration of God's slow, careful, deliberate, loving providence, particularly in terms of how he develops leaders. So let's read the story. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 26, Acts 9, 26 to 31. And when he had come to Jerusalem, that's Paul, of course, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In essence, we're looking at this little story and then the gap that exists in this story that is then filled in or that Acts jumps back into at Acts 11.25. So just flip in your Bibles to Acts 11.25. It's probably one page, depending on the size of your font. Flip to Acts 11.25. So that's when Paul jumps back into the story. Here's a funny thing about reading your Bible. Sometimes uh, we read the Bible as if there are no gaps between verses and paragraphs. Uh, but then when you slow down and, you know, you get a study Bible or, you know, you, you get a commentary, you realize, whoa, there, there, was, there were 40 years between chapter 11 and chapter 12. Because that's how stories are told. Uh, like, it, it, when you read the Old Testament, it kind of feels like, whoa, it was a real fast ride. And there was something happening. Red seas were parting. Mountains were exploding. People were rising from the dead. And you're like, no, 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 that was four things over 800 years, right? And in between, there was just a lot of faithful following. It's, sometimes you actually learn a great deal by just doing a little timeline in the margin of your Bible. And it's tricky, because in the Old Testament, they'll awful, often reference it with a king. They'll say, in the days of king so-and-so, such a thing happened. And then, in the days of king so-and-so, another thing happened. And you're like, oh, wow, interesting. That was a good week. No, that was a good century. Uh, right? Like, it's helpful to kind of look that stuff up. There's actually a significant gap between when Paul drops out of the story in Acts Acts 9.31, and when he pops back in, in Acts 11.25, it's a a decade. Not everything that happened in that decade is is told in Acts 10. They tell a couple of other stories, but they're about other people. There's a decade here. So Paul pops back into the story. The church in Antioch, at this point, had begun to grow, and it was a very interesting church. It's a very important church. It's the first church that we know of in church history where Jews and Gentiles began to worship and serve side by side. And it never happened before. So the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to check it out and to discover how he could help them. And Barnabas saw the church. He immediately understood what God was doing there. And verse 25, so this is Acts eleven twenty-five says, Barnabas went to Tarsus, right? That's, that's where Paul was at the end of Acts 9, 31. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's, a, that's an important little line. We think of that as a throwaway line, like, oh, how interesting. Like, if you look out to your right, you'll see people being called Christians. Uh, it, like, a passing note. It's actually very important. You know why Christians were first called Christians in Antioch? Because up until that point, they had just been called Jews who loved Jesus. But now, all of a sudden, half that church is not Jewish. If no Jewish background whatsoever, you've got to come up with a new name for them. And so they started calling them Christians. This was a whole new church. This was a whole new day. And it required a whole new leader. And so Barnabas went looking for Saul. But why did Barnabas have to go looking for Saul in the first place? Why had God sent him into obscurity in Tarsus for the better part of a decade? That's what we're talking about this morning. I think the first part of the answer has got to be this, because leadership is about more than passion, boldness, and charisma. Paul had all those things way back in Acts chapter 9. We're told that. Look at Acts 9, 28 to 29. Luke says, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, 
Those are Greek-speaking Jews, so he was making it happen with the Hebrew Jews. He was making it happen with the Greek Jews. He was all over the place, but they were seeking to kill him. Paul was a rock star in every conceivable way. He was incredibly well-educated. Scholars sometimes use the expression Hebrew Harvard. Paul went to Hebrew Harvard. Uh, We know that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was an incredibly famous rabbi. He's one of the people we actually know about from that time period in non-Christian sources. Gamaliel was famous in his own right. And, And Paul studied in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. So he went to Hebrew Harvard. And then he was a young up-and-comer. We know that because Paul tells us that in Galatians chapter 1, but we would have figured that out for ourselves based on the story in Acts chapter 7. You remember the story of Stephen's martyrdom. Well, who was overseeing that entire gathering of people? Who Who was then dispatched to hunt down the Christians on special assignment from the Jewish Senate? A young man named Paul. He was basically a junior clerk of the Jewish Senate. Okay, well, you don't give those positions to C plus students, right? Paul was a star, and now he was on our team. Friends, this would be like if Richard Dawkins, I don't know if you know who Richard Dawkins is, Richard Dawkins is sometimes referred to as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's it's obviously an overstatement, I don't think he actually is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but it's a way of saying he he has been a real strong opponent of Christianity for the last 20 years. He's an atheist, Uh, he's a... um, He's a zoologist, he's, he's a scientist who is a proponent of evolution and a real strong critic of Christianity. He's the guy they interview on TV when they want to make Christians look stupid. Imagine if Richard Dawkins converted to Christianity. You know what would happen, right? Like all of a sudden, the guy who used to be out to get us is now on our team. Within days, he would be the most sought-after speaker on the Christian circuit, wouldn't he? He would, he would be giving the closing address at T4G. Uh, he would be giving the commencement speech at Liberty University. You know that's exactly how it would go down. But that's not how it goes down in this story. God sends this superstar into obscurity. Because leadership is about more than passion, boldness, and charisma. Paul needed to learn to walk with a limp. And after his time in Tarsus, he did, literally and metaphorically. We don't know all of what Paul was doing in Tarsus. We know he was studying Greek culture. We know he was working as a tent maker. And we know he was agitating his local synagogue leaders. Paul refers to that in some of his letters. He says, for example, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. By the way, five times, I bet you, is a record. Historian John Pollock. So if you're wondering, what is that? What are we talking about? There's a difference. Paul talks about the various punishments he he received in various times in his ministry. The 40 lashes less one was the Jewish church discipline. Church discipline was rigorous in those days, right? Um, And that was the Jewish punishment. The Romans had a a different way of punishing people. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Historian John Pollock says here, writing in AD 56... So this is, this is Paul now in AD 56. He mentions being punished no less than five times by the Jewish 40 stripes save one. Yet none of this is recorded in Acts. That all happens between Acts 9 and Acts 11. Thus it is probable that he was whipped more than once in the hidden years at Tarsus. Listen to this. Scourging was regarded as the correction of a brother. 
Some of you have brothers who perhaps like to scourge. Uh, this, it was in-house discipline. Scourging was regarded as the correction of a brother. Purging his offense that he might resume a place in the family of the synagogue. So that answers your question of why five times? Is Paul a slow learner? No, he went through it all five times so that he could come back the next week and preach the gospel again. So at the very least, we know that Paul was preaching the gospel in the hidden years, apparently in the context of his home synagogue. As a trained Hebrew scholar, of course, Paul would have had the right and would have had an open invitation to stand up. Jewish services were a little less formal and structured than ours. Uh, there, were, there were multiple readings from the, from the Old Testament, and then anyone who was qualified could stand up and offer an encouragement based on any of those readings. And you know the Apostle Paul was just sitting in the back doing this, right? The whole time. And the synagogue leaders were gritting their teeth, knowing that he was going to stand up and he was going to do it again. And if he crossed the line, if he said anything that was formally at odds with their position, then he would have received that discipline. Pollock describes what that would have looked like. He says, watch by the congregation. By the way, church discipline didn't happen off in a room. It didn't happen in a boardroom. Happened in the middle of the congregation. Watched by the congregation. He was bent and bound between two pillars. The Hazan, possibly the same one who had taught him as a boy, solemnly tore at his robe until his torso was bare. The Hazan picked up a heavy whip formed by a four-pronged strap of calf hide with two prongs of ass hide long enough to reach the navel from behind and above. He stood on a stone and with one hand using all his might brought it down over Paul's shoulder to curl around and cut his chest. Thirteen lashes were counted while a reader intoned curses from the law. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. After the 13 on the chest, the whipping was transferred to the back, 13 hard strokes across one shoulder, 13 across the other, other cutting across wheels already bleeding The synagogue elder in charge could stop the punishment if the prisoner collapsed or lost control of his bowels, but such mercy can have been exercised seldom, for the scourger was expressly indemnified if the victim died. Paul endured to the end, tasting not only the agony he had inflicted on others, but sharing of his pain, but the sharing of his pain with Jesus. Remember, the Apostle Paul's job before he got converted was actually rounding up Christians so that they could experience this. If you think about it, it's almost a mercy and a kindness of God that Paul or, or that God ordained for Paul to undergo this. It would have been hard for him to preach and pastor with integrity to people who had experienced this punishment at his hand had he not also joined with them in that suffering. See, it wasn't enough for Paul to be brilliant. It wasn't enough for him to know the Bible better than anybody else. It wasn't enough for him to have the boldness of a lion. He needed to learn empathy. He needed to learn humility. He needed to taste suffering. There are certain things you need to serve usefully in the church that you can't learn from a book. You know, as much as we revere the book, I think we're rightly known as people of the book, right? But even still, you know there are certain things you can't learn 
just by reading the book. King David knew that, and King David knew the book. In fact, according to Deuteronomy 17, David had to write out a copy of the Old Testament by hand, copy of the Torah by hand, before he could ascend the throne. And even still, David said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Some things you can only learn the hard way, literally. Now, that may offend some of you, but that is true. There are certain things you can only learn in the school of affliction. And Paul had to spend some time there for him to become the kind of leader God wanted him to be. Then secondly, it would seem from our reading of Acts 9 that God sent Paul to Tarsus because there's a time for war and a time for peace. We read that this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 if you're an RMM person. One of the, I've been working through Proverbs. I've been uh, trying to complete a podcast series in the book of Proverbs, so I've been spending a lot of time, the last six months, in the wisdom literature of the Bible. And one of the things you see in the wisdom literature is that a great deal of wisdom comes down to timing. And this is something I don't think we as evangelicals understand very well. If, I think evangelicals are actually more rigid than the Bible. Evangelicals in North America are more rigid than the Bible. Meaning evangelicals are always like, this is the right way to do it. And uh, trust me, this is the right type of person to be a pastor. And you're like, okay. But, but in the wisdom literature, there's often a sense of, well, different tools for different jobs, different seasons require different emphases. There's a time for war and a time for peace, a time to tear and a time to sow. Wisdom is about timing. And think of how in Proverbs it says, um, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Right? Proverbs says, you know, sometimes it's better not to to engage with a fool, because the fool's not going to change, you're going to change. If you're not sure about that, spend two months on Twitter. Right? Because that's a, like, if you think, you know what, I'm going to engage with this fool in the comment section of Twitter. Listen, I got news for you. He's not going to become a Christian. You're going to become a fool. Answer not a fool according to his folly. But you know what the next verse is in Proverbs? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you're like, what? Answer not a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. What is going on there? You know what's going on there? Timing. What the Bible is saying is that sometimes it depends on the place, it depends on the person, and it depends on the situation. Timing. Situational awareness. Right tool for the right job. Paul was a unique tool. (laughs) He was sharp, particularly at the start of his ministry. He came out of the gate like a man on fire. He was a war machine. He was a hand grenade. Right, as I mentioned, he knew the Bible better than anybody else. He had a story like nobody else. And he was kind of a maverick. He he was nobody's understudy. Paul said that himself. He was no kind of derivative apostle. He says that in Galatians 1. He says that God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. By the way, all of that content, that three-year little narrative there, all, well, more than that, but the, the mention of the, the different travels and the three years in Arabia, all of that 
fits between Acts 9.22 and 23. Again, this is, this is why these, this part of the story is less well-known to us, because you've got to take all these little puzzle pieces from Paul's letters and put them together and create a timeline. Paul was in Damascus, right? That's where we left them in Acts 9, in, in terms of that's where the, the, the great conversion story happens, right? Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. So he's up in Damascus. Then he went out into the desert. Then he came back to Damascus. Then he went down to Jerusalem. We get that story. That's where Luke tells the story in Acts 9.26, which raises the question, what in the world happened to the Apostle Paul out in that desert? Paul says that God revealed the Son to him. Now, that's got to mean more than just that God taught Paul about Jesus. It appears to mean that Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ. Now, again, we don't know as much about that as we would like to know, but Paul refers. There's little snippets in his letters. He says in Ephesians 3, 2 to 3, You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So Paul keeps referring to the fact that he learned about Jesus by revelation, not secondhand, not, not from the other apostles. Well, when did that happen? Again, we, we can't be 100% sure, but we know that it happened in a fairly spectacular way because after his decade in Tarsus, he would look back on a time before that decade. So again, you've got to put all these little time stamps together in the margin of your Bible. After his decade in Tarsus, he looks back to a time before his decade in Tarsus and says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 2. We're almost certain that Paul's speaking about himself there because a few verses later he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited. Obviously, if those revelations had happened to a friend of Paul's, he wouldn't have needed a thorn in the flesh to keep from being conceited. He'd have been happy. So Paul is, is saying... I had some incredible revelations, some incredible experiences with Jesus, stuff that nobody else has had, so much so that a thorn in the flesh was ordained for me to keep me from becoming conceited. Again, we'd like to know more about that than we do, but here's what we know. Before his decade of exile in Tarsus, Paul had experienced firsthand revelation from Jesus. So he was brilliant. He had a generational mind, he had a great story, and he had incredible spiritual experiences. And he went off in the wider Jewish context like a bomb. Like Moses, there was no way for him to hide who he was, and there was no way for him to hide what had happened to him. And there was no way for his ministry not to attract the wholesale antagonism of the Jews. And it was not the right time for that. It was too early in the process for that kind of a definitive showdown. And so Paul was sent off to Tarsus and enrolled in a 10-year postdoctorate program in the School of Affliction. And in that season of lowered tensions, the church actually grew. Sidelining this electric character for a decade bought the Church of Jesus Christ a season of peace in which to heal grow, and consolidate. Look at the very last verse that we read in our story, Acts 9.31. So, the word so is a connective. 
It means because of that, because they took Paul away to Tarsus, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here's something we need to understand, friends. The church was not designed for constant conflict. It is a body, not a machine. And bodies need time to rest and recover. When I was in high school, I read the book All Quiet on the Western Front. And, uh, and then I read it again as an adult after high school. I haven't yet seen the movie that came out on Netflix. If you've seen it and you want to give me a heads up as to whether it's good or not, let me know. But what I remember about the book, I, my reaction to the book, my, one of my initial reactions was, I expected, when you call a book, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front, I expected it was going to be mostly a book about, you know, the hand-to-hand combat in the trenches. But if you've read the book, you know, actually, most of the story takes place when they're resting behind the lines. Because, of course, that's how war goes. A human being can only engage in hand-to-hand combat for a couple hours. A human being can only stand guard in a wet trench for a couple of days. And then after that, they need some time to rest and recover. They need food. They need sleep. They need some time to write letters to loved ones. They need time to hope. So it is with the church. The church cannot endure constant conflict. There is a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And woe to the Christian leader who does not understand that. Woe to the church saddled with a leader who does not understand that. There is a time for the warrior's axe, and there is also a time for the servant's towel. There is a time for conflict, and there is a time to be quiet, to retool and rest. And Paul, at the early stages of his ministry, only had one posture, and it wasn't the posture that was required at that time. So he went for further training, and other leaders for about a decade took center stage. He was out of sight, but of course he was not out of mind. And at the right time, as a much better man, he reemerged to serve the Lord faithfully in a critical season. Thanks be to God. So that's the story of Paul's hidden years in Tarsus, but what's the point? Why do we bother taking all these little puzzle pieces and trying to stitch them together to fill in this gap? Why do we care? What's the intended takeaway? That's what I want to spend our last few minutes on. I think the greatest impression that this story has on me every time I revisit it is the fact that clearly God is not in our kind of hurry. I get that same impression every time I read through the story of Moses. If you're doing the RMM Bible reading plan, there are certain seasons of the year when you're reading certain stories. And uh, every year in the, the, the later days of winter, I'm reminded that God works on a whole different sense of time than we do. That's actually where that quote comes from, or that heading, God is not in our kind of hurry. Moses is spending 40 years in the desert tending sheep, and one of the commentators on Exodus, A.P. Baker, makes that comment. God is not in our kind of hurry. There's actually a lot of um, similarities between the story of Moses and the story of the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you've ever noticed them. Both were brilliant, well-educated men. Remember that? Moses was, uh, was beautiful. We were told Moses was beautiful. Stephen tells us that Moses was so beautiful, his parents knew that God must have had a purpose for him. 
<laughs> you just, I don't even know what to make of that, right? But he, so he was a, a good-looking kid. He was a smart kid. And then, of course, uh, by a, a movement of providence, he ended up being raised in the court of Pharaoh. And so he was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt, Stephen tells us that. So he was a smart man. He was a handsome man. He was everything we would assume you're looking for in a leader, right? And yet his first attempt to be a liberator of the Jews ended in disaster. And he ended up running for his life and spending 40 years in the desert. 40 years thinking, you know, what went wrong? What was God thinking? How in the world, right? Very similar to the Apostle Paul story. Brilliant guy, brilliant mind, once in a generation mind, incredibly well educated. Now he's on our team but it wasn't the right time. He wasn't yet the right man. So he gets sent into the desert for a decade. And that just looks like a pattern as you start reading the Bible. That's how God did it with Moses. That's how God did it with David, too. Have you ever noticed the huge time gap between when David was anointed as the next king of Israel and when he actually got to be the next king of Israel? That's a long time. Do you know that David spent 13 years wandering in the wilderness of Judea? writing prayers and psalms in the cave of Adullam. Or think of Joseph, right? Another great redeemer of God's people. Spent 13 years either in prison or living as a slave. Clearly, God is not in our kind of hurry. When we see a talented young person today, immediately we want to platform them. Right? And if you ever try to even use that old expression, we used to say this when I was a kid, nobody was offended. Now, you know the expression, the children are the church of tomorrow? Hey, people my age and older, I'm just going to give you a little heads up. If you use that phrase today, some 27 year old will stand up and say, the children are the church of today. Sit down, boomer. Right? It's very hostile. There is a sense today. That, like, if you see a gifted young person, you need to put a microphone in their hand now. You need to platform them now. You need to hand over the keys to the megachurch to them now. You need to give them a podcast and a book deal now. How's that working out for you? Over the last 20 years in evangelicalism, we have learned the hard way that slow and steady really is the right way to develop leaders. And that's been tough for us because we're a microwave culture, right? We want everything hot and ready, and we want it now, right? We are, that's who we are. But God is more crockpot than microwave. I don't even know, does crockpot still work as an illustration? Yeah, you're nodding your head, Pastor Frank. You know what I'm saying, right? When I was a kid, it was all crockpot on Sunday, right? You, you woke up, and as you were getting ready for church, your mom was in there, and she was cutting carrots and, and uh, celery and onions and, and ground beef and putting it in the crock pot. And then you went to church for like four or five hours because church was long back then. And then you came home and, and uh, you opened the crock pot and like a lasagna and garlic bread came out. It was incredible. I don't know. I may be mixing some memories there, but I wasn't, in, I wasn't involved in the process. I just in, I ate what came out of the pot. It's incredible, right? What I learned from watching the crock pot is, is that with a, with a little heat, a little pressure and a lot of time and do some amazing things. And that's how God works. So you need to hear that. If you're in the desert today, if you're wondering, when am I going to get my shot? 
When, when, when will I get my turn? Be encouraged. You are exactly where God wants you to be. Be fruitful and faithful wherever you are. Make the best tense in Tarsus. Be the best shepherd in Midian. Write prayers and songs in the cave of Adullam. And when is the right time? When God thinks it's the right time, you shall come forth as gold. God is slow, but it's because he makes things that last. Second thing I think the story is reminding us is that no leader is indispensable to the mission. The book of Acts makes that point again and again and again. This is the first time we're seeing that point made, but it will not be the last. Flip forward in your Bible, just, just one page maybe or two pages to Acts 12. Look at the first two verses there. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James, the brother of John. My goodness. If, if you're a gospel reader, you know that James, the brother of John, was one of the top three. He was, he was a big deal, right? There was, Jesus had 12 disciples, but then he kind of had like that inner three. Peter, James, and John, who got to some special experiences. It was only, only Peter, James, and John that got to go up on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. It was only Peter and James and John who got to go into the house where Jesus raised that little girl from the dead. James was a top-tier Christian leader. And yet, for whatever reason, he dies in the third episode of the second season, right? What's up with that? And then it happens again in Acts 15. We're told that Paul and Barnabas decide to take two different routes for the next church planning journey. Paul and Silas are going to go one way. Barnabas and Mark are going to go the other way. And then we never hear from Barnabas again. Barnabas, who was one of the main characters in the first half of the story, Barnabas, it was Barnabas' huge gift in Acts chapter 4 that uh, it basically fueled the food ministry that you know, had to be figured out in Acts chapter 6. It was Barnabas who solved the problem in Antioch and went and got the Apostle Paul, launched him. It was, it was remember, if you, if you remember the first journey, missionary journey of, of Saul and Barnabas, it's always Barnabas and Saul. I mean, he was a big deal. And then he... He disappears from the story. According to church history, he was martyred in Cyprus, stoned by the Jews outside the synagogue in Salamis. There's a message in there for us, I think. And the message is that no leader is indispensable to the mission of the church. Can you say amen to that? Let me make it harder for you. What about Pastor Levi? Right here. Let me ask you a question. What would happen to Redeemer City Church if Pastor Levi was hit by a bus on his way home from Cornerstone today? Now, I hope that doesn't happen. But what if he was hit by a bus? Would Redeemer City Church survive? If you struggle to answer that, then you should shut this place down. Now, listen, just to be clear, I'm not saying that you wouldn't mourn that. I'm not saying that, you, that it wouldn't be extremely difficult to overcome that. I'm not saying there wouldn't be an adjustment, period. But you understand that no human leader is the foundation of the church. Only Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Only Jesus Christ is the foundation. No human leader 
is indispensable. Only him. And I'll tell you, it's a dangerous thing being a leader people think is indispensable. Because every time a leader emerges that people think is indispensable, God kills him. <laughs> right? John, John Calvin came along, and he was like a once-in-a-generation mind. He was the guy helping us figure out why we shouldn't be Catholic, right? He was so wonderful, and so he died in his mid-50s. Then came Spurgeon, and Spurgeon taught us how to be passionate and, and have a big heart, even while we had good theology, how to care for the poor, while at the same time caring about doctrine. He was so awesome, God killed him also in his mid-50s. Even the Apostle Paul, we think, we read the New Testament and we're like, wow, that guy must have lived forever. Look at all the letters he wrote. Actually, he got converted, spent a decade in nowhere, came back, ministered for a short period of time, and died in his early 60s. Right? No human leader is indispensable. This is about Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his present intercession this is about him. And by the way, if you're sitting here thinking, oh, I don't know if I feel, I feel good about that. Like, I feel like maybe you're slighting Pastor Levi. Let me tell you something. If Pastor Levi would hear, were here, he'd be the loudest amen in this room. He doesn't want to die in his mid-50s, right? So you better figure out. <laughs> you better figure that out right now. Best thing you can do for your church, best thing you can do for him. This is about Jesus, friends, from start to finish. The rest of us play our part Spend our talents, spill our blood, exit the stage, die, and are forgotten. And the church of Jesus Christ marches on. This is his story, not our story. Thanks be to God. Then one last thing. I think the story of Paul's hidden years in Tarsus, I think that story is intended to remind all of us of the necessity of quiet, solitude, and obscurity. Paul's preparation for ministry involved two seasons of desert and exile, one in the actual desert of Arabia, the other in the metaphorical desert of Tarsus. Paul needed that time. The Apostle Paul was made in that time, and so it is with all leaders. Real leadership is forged in quiet. You can't become in the spotlight. You can't hear in the rush of the day-to-day. All of that has to be sourced from somewhere else. And that somewhere else is the place of quiet, solitude, and obscurity. Paul needed those years. He needed that depth of well to sustain him in the years and decades ahead. There's a fellow on our board. I'd say his name, but the way RCC has changed, probably only half of you in this room would know who I'm talking about. But there's a fellow on our board who took it upon himself a few years ago to make sure that I took all of my holiday time because I hadn't been. My approach to holidays had simply been, hey, listen, I'll take the weeks I, I need. Uh, like if I can take my kids somewhere, or I can take my wife somewhere, great. But if you give me more holidays than I've got money to do stuff, then whatever, I'll just keep working. And this fellow took it upon himself to make sure that I actually took that time. The first year that he was successful in so doing was 2019. There were a couple weeks there where we didn't go anywhere as a family, didn't take the kids anywhere. The kids were in school, but I took the week off anyway. And I lingered over the Word each morning. I spent extra time in prayer. I went for a lot of long walks, and it was wonderful. And it's a good thing I did, because hard on the heels of that season of refreshment came COVID-19 and the three most exhausting years of ministry in my lifetime. 
Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Quiet matters. Solitude matters. Time alone with Jesus matters. And not just for pastors, for any kind of leader. Pastors are are leaders, but so are parents. I mean, there's a number of of different types of leader for whom this is true. There's a great story about Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was John Wesley's mother, and she had 19 children. Can you imagine that? And houses were smaller in those days, so she had a busy house. And uh, and the story is that uh, every day, at a certain point in the day, she would take her apron and she would put it up over her head and make a tent, and in that tent she'd have her quiet time with the Lord. And the children all knew not to disturb mama when she's in the tent. She needed that time. We all need that time. We need that every day. We need to fight for those hours of quiet because that is where strength is found. That is where character is forged. And that is where wells are dug that will nourish and sustain our souls through the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to slow down a little bit, piece together a few things, pay close attention to some details in the word of of the Lord so that we can observe and understand your providence in preparing kingdom servants. Lord, we want to serve. We want to be useful. Lord, in our impatience, that means we want you to use us now in the most amazing, extravagant ways possible. We We struggle to understand uh, the refining fire. And so, Lord, uh, we ask for patience. We ask for grace. We ask that by degrees you would shape us into the people, the men, the women, the boys, the girls, the church that you want us to be, that we could serve you faithfully and fruitfully in the hour you have appointed. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.